Welcome back to another Crypto Daily 3 at 3. All right, so today one and two are kind of uh, parallels of each other. So first we're going to look at the return of crime FUD. Um, it's obviously been a major category FUD throughout the history of crypto. Tons of people first came into crypto because they heard of the Silk Road or something like that. Um, but it's back in, a, in, I think, a big way, in a way that's worth uh, noting and observing. So that's our start. Um, second, we're going to look at uh, how we combat that FUD, particularly looking at whether adoption uh, and legitimate adoption can actually be a, a salve and an answer to that. And then third, we're going to look at um, news that just came out that Patrick Byrne, the CEO of, of Overstock, had stepped down. Uh, and what it means for crypto. So let's start with number one, the return of crime FUD. So um, there were a bunch of things that were noticeable, obviously, about or notable about Donald Trump tweeting about Bitcoin. Uh, the first was that Donald Trump was tweeting about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. The second was that as much as it was about Bitcoin, it seemed even more to be about Libra. Um, the third is that he kind of plied and plumbed for this older narrative of uh, crime, right? So when he was saying, I am not a fan of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which are not money and whose value is highly volatile and based on thin air, that's kind of like the whatever part. But then he says, unregulated crypto assets can facilitate unlawful behavior, including drug trade and other illegal activity. So again, this has been a part of the Bitcoin narrative, or at least the kind of the FUD narrative for pretty much as long as most mainstream uh, outlets, politicians, etc., have heard of, of Bitcoin, right? This is kind of part and parcel of new technologies. They're often adopted on the margins first uh, by people who are looking for alternatives to the regulated mainstream system. Um, it is just kind of a byproduct of, of the nature of, of what these technologies can do. Um, the, the challenge comes in how uh, what they do or what these narratives do, what these FUD narratives do in terms of building um, legitimate support for this in kind of those uh, those existing mainstream institutions uh, and and how that matters. So we saw this kind of return uh, for, for uh, in a major way with Donald Trump's speech or his tweet rather. And then we saw uh, a couple of weeks later when there were hearings on Congress about uh, about Libra and about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more broadly, but particularly about Libra, we heard this sort of radical statement from Brad Sherman, who has been uh, historically extremely antagonistic towards Bitcoin, um, that uh, Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency will be worse than 9-11. Um, and he went on to very vociferously defend this. Uh, he says Libra will enable tax evaders, terrorists, sanctions evaders, and drug dealers. Um, it will make it more difficult for the federal government to fund cancer research or prevent Iran and North Korea from developing nuclear weapons. So, you know, when he had his allotted five minutes at the congressional hearing about Libra, he didn't actually spend his time asking questions to David Marcus, who was there representing Facebook, he just talked about how bad this was going to be for the world, um, with obviously these extreme and sort of in very poor taste comparisons, uh, as anyone from New York can tell you. And the way that he ended it was basically an assertion that just wait for the first terrorist cell that uses Bitcoin to, to fund itself and see how much support there is for cryptocurrencies among the American people. Um, so again, aggressive return to uh, the crime narrative. And in fact, sort of a new level of it with this idea of, of evoking the specter of terrorism. Um, 
This was kind of echoed last weekend. Uh, Nathaniel Popper wrote a very long form piece for the New York Times about how terrorist organizations, uh, and he focused on Hassan, or the uh, Hamas and the Qassam Brigades um, as an example, but he talked about how terrorist organizations are increasingly using uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to fundraise. Um, you know, and he referenced uh, uh, in, in that, he referenced a um, a larger piece by uh, Memory, which is a I'm trying to remember the Middle East Media Research Institute um, that has that is arguing that uh, this is kind of a, a a phenomenon on the rise that there is an increase that they're seeing in um, terrorist organizations using cryptocurrencies to uh, finance themselves. Now, I think one thing that's really important and I really encourage you to do is anytime you see uh, something that is um, research reference from a think tank, particularly a quote unquote nonpartisan, uh, non-political think tank, go do just a quick search, uh, Wikipedia level even, to find out what the reports of that particular organization's bias are. Because there are basically no unbiased think tanks in the world. That's really not their purpose. Their purpose is to advance narratives and political agendas under the guise of nonpartisanship. Um, even nonpartisanship in the context of think tanks becomes its own political narrative that is an agenda that they're trying to push. Which again, doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's illegitimate or delegitimates anything they have to say, but it is worth figuring out what grain of salt you're supposed to take it with. Memory, in this case, is an organization that has been long accused since its founding in 1998 of, uh, of working really hard to paint the Arab world in as, as poor light as possible, to be very selective about which media they reference. Again, this doesn't mean that there's uh, that this is ignorable necessarily, but it means that there is a context for this particular uh, terrorist fight. It's part of a larger agenda of, uh, of kind of fight against the the entire Arab world. Um, make of that what you will. So we saw that uh, rise in this terrorist narrative. I particularly uh, and personally believe that if there are, depending on how conversations go and how the narrative shifts in terms of uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in the US, to the extent that powerful actors oppose it, it will be on the basis of this narrative. Um, that's my belief. I think it's uh, it, it's worked historically, uh, ever since 9-11 in particularly, and even before that. So watch out for that. It's kind of a narrative watch that I've got my eye on, but it's not just terrorism, right? So uh, yesterday, or two days ago, maybe, no, yesterday, um, uh, the OFAC, Office of Foreign Assets Control, updated the um, the specially designated nationals list. So these are basically people that Americans are not allowed to do business with. Uh, they added 11 new Bitcoin addresses and one Litecoin address. Um, these are three, basically these are uh, Chinese drug kin kingpins, they said. So they named a, a, a number of national, a Chinese nationals, uh, alleging that they violated money laundering and drug smuggling laws. Um, this isn't the first that we've seen uh, these addresses be added to lists like this, right? We saw a number of uh, Bitcoin addresses controlled by Iranians added to the sanctions list a few months ago. Um, so again, this is this is clearly in that. Uh, this is just the job of these organizations, right? They're not like necessarily out to FUD Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. However, when taken in the context of you know larger terrorism narrative rising and all this sort of stuff, uh, it becomes part of, again, a larger crime FUD uh, narrative rising. Um, add to this uh, the White House saying basically that cryptocurrencies have been used for fentanyl purchases. Um, obviously, in the U.S., there's few issues as 
hot button and uh, and important right now um, in in the the crime enforcement and social world really as uh, opiate abuse. And so again, this just contributes to this idea of uh, of of cryptocurrencies only being used by criminals, right? Um, this is something even uh, recently I got into a bit of a conversation with uh, I think an Ars Technica writer who had gone to the Bitcoin embassy in Mexico City uh, and said it was impossible to use uh, Bitcoin to buy a beer or whatever it was, whatever he was trying to do. And, uh, and he came back with basically it's only used for criminals. So this is, this is a narrative that's never gone away, but it's on the rise again. And so the question is, what can we do to combat it? So the question is, can you build legitimacy? Can you combat the crime FUD narrative by uh, through adoption, right? Legitimacy through adoption. That's my, it's, it really should have a question mark here um, as the, the second theme for today. Uh, and so that's, it's an interesting question, right? So um, one effort with that regard comes from, uh, from Lee over at Coindesk, who's been uh, looking, she keeps track of how Bitcoin is being used around the world. Um, she's written about uh Bitcoin being used in Gaza before. Um, and she wrote another piece, uh, this just released today, that argues that the legitimate use of Bitcoin in Gaza and in the Palestinian territories has uh, gone up significantly and in fact dwarfs that illicit uh, kind of um, uh, Islamist use uh, for fundraising. So uh, the quote here is, there are some offices that do five, that now do $5 million to $6 million a month I've seen an office send 100 Bitcoin in one transaction. There are also lots of small clients that send 200 or 1,000. So this is a freelance web developer in Gaza who says this. Um, and you know what Lee points out is that that $5 million figure would absolutely dwarf the tens of thousands of dollars that were reported in, uh, in Popper's article earlier, or I guess last week. Um, she goes on, she writes, uh, or last year, she's kind of referencing herself, um, she pointed to uh, one cryptocurrency dealer that served 50 clients a month, uh, purchasing or liquidating an average of 500 each, um, and goes on to say that two sources with knowledge of the matter estimate there are up to 20 Bitcoin dealers now operating in Gaza. Since PayPal and other online services exclude the Palestinian territories, this is one of the only ways for freelancers to easily receive international payments. So again, this is a, a, a an example of how how this technology is not just being used by the criminal underclass, it's being used by people who don't have other options. And interestingly, in this case, it's being used by people who don't have other options because there is a criminal class that they get swept up with. Like part of the challenge and part of the problem with sanctions, as uh, useful a tool as they are for governments, um, and the US government in particular, is that they tend to disproportionately hurt people at the bottom of the socioeconomic period. Uh, in this case, Bitcoin is being used both by the people that they're trying to target with those sanctions, as well as the people who are uh, being most affected by those sanctions, despite the fact that they are just trying to live their lives and go about their daily business and actually, you know, provide for their families and all that good stuff. So will this sort of uh, adoption narrative change things? Maybe, maybe not. You know, for a lot of people, they're going to read this and they've already written off Gaza. They've written the Palestinian territories um, as a as a monolithic sort of supporter of terrorism. Uh, and, and it gets swept up basically in larger political issues. So maybe let's look at another form of mass adoption. Maybe the, the alliances that we should be looking for as a Bitcoin community, as a crypto community, are less about, uh, you know, it being used to get around sanctions, even if legitimately, and more around... Um, 
uh, adoption kind of from a mainstream, you know, U.S. Western consumer use. So Lolly uh, just turned a, uh, a year old this week. And um, for those who don't know, Lolly is a company that allows you, they do partnerships with retailers and allow you to get Bitcoin back. So it's kind of like a classic cashback thing, but instead of getting cash back, you're stacking sats. Um, and so their idea and kind of the whole push here is like to give people a chance to get introduced to Bitcoin and crypto by actually getting it, by putting it in their hands just for doing the normal things that they're already doing. Um, and so Lolly has been really good and on a tear kind of uh, at, uh, at, at with their announcements of, of who they worked with. So um, they they just, their most recent announcement is that they had partnered with Postmates, uh, which is obviously one of the kind of biggest uh, on-demand delivery services uh, around the US. Um, and I think, you know, in other parts as well, uh, but that is, potentially, you know, uh, Brecky also kind of referenced this. How do we spread Bitcoin adoption, especially when people are scared away by volatility? Try Lolly is currently my favorite way because consumers don't have to buy Bitcoin directly. So this is, a, again, maybe this is sort of a path where the more people that you have using Bitcoin or getting Bitcoin for doing the things that they normally do and discovering what they can do with it, the better. Now, I think that realistically, uh, the challenge is to fight that particular crime narrative. Um, it's going to take more than just uh, adoption from U.S. consumers, particularly when the adoption is actually not a behavior shift. It's just getting some Bitcoin for the thing that you already do, as much as I admire what Lolly is. Um, and I don't think, unfortunately, that uh, showing that Palestinians are using the uh, are using Bitcoin legitimately or to sort of help themselves outside and around terrorism is likely to get kind of hawks uh, away from the crime narrative who are worried about how it's going to fund terrorism. Um, I'm just skeptical as, as much as I would like that to be the case. I think, though, that there is some promise in the fact that realistically, there are a lot of benefits that crypto assets offer to law enforcement over and above traditional cash, which has up until now been the preferred system for money laundering and for terrorist financing and for every other sort of nefarious activity that you can imagine. Um, so uh, Yaya, uh, when when the OF when OFAC uh, was announced, uh, Yaya uh, Fenusi, who is a former CIA analyst and looks a lot about um, kind of the larger global context for crypto from uh, that sort of statecraft point of view, says, here are the designated cryptocurrency addresses OFAC just designated that belong to members of a Chinese opioid ring. Let the blockchain analysis begin. And so again, what I mean is that there are obviously like the fact that these addresses are showing up on these lists is representative, I think, in some ways of the fact that cryptocurrencies uh, create a, a trail of breadcrumbs for law enforcement that is in a lot of ways more powerful than even uh, what cash can do. Um, now, this is holding aside entirely uh, the, the extreme end of this argument, which is uh, central bank digital currencies and completely surveillable money. Um, but, you know, you also have uh, Chainalysis launching real-time alerts for suspicious transactions across 15 cryptocurrencies. These are tools that law enforcement is going to use. And I think that, you know, to the extent that there is uh, a, a desire to see um, the, the protection of these assets of Bitcoin 
uh, enshrined at high governmental levels. Um, education around how it can be and is being used by law enforcement is probably a part of this. Now, again, at the end of the day, this all gets to the question of what the purpose of these technologies are. Um, there is a, a huge and legitimate argument that even the fact that they are so traceable and surveillable is a problem, and that's part of the uh, the justification for and, and the motivation for um, you know default private transactions. But either way, I think that the the, the reality is is that uh, we haven't necessarily reached escape velocity yet for um, for Bitcoin as uh, acceptable by the US government. We have right now an interesting window in which almost all of the heat is on um, Facebook and Libra, but it wouldn't be surprising to me that that, uh, that is only a relatively short window. Um, now, there are some who will say that it doesn't matter that Bitcoin is the honey badger and uh, a ban would actually just increase people's interest in it, um, but I'm not sure. And I, I, you know, I think it's worth debating, I think it's worth discussing, but for now, I think that the important thing to note is that one, there is a rise in this crime FUD narrative again, and two, uh, it, it's worth having the conversation about how we combat that more than just kind of these glib, uh, you know, well, cash is worse kind of analyses that seem to be very popular on Twitter. Um, but with that, I think we'll leave that there for today and move on to our third and final uh, piece for the, for the day. So uh, Patrick Byrne, CEO of Overstock, is um, both a colorful character and one of the most kind of notable Bitcoin advocates in uh, mainstream finance. Um, he, or not mainstream finance, but I guess in, in public company life is a better way to put it. Uh, so Pomp today tweeted out, breaking, Patrick Byrne, CEO of Overstock and one of Bitcoin's only verbal supporters at the helm of a public company, just announced the res his resignation effective immediately from the company. Thankfully, we still have Jack and others to continue onwards in the public market. Um, so this was breaking news today. Uh, this is CNBC. Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne resigns following deep state comments um, and uh, and the stock rises at the announcement. So the market's like this. So basically, this actually was not so much about uh, Bitcoin or about cryptocurrencies. In fact, it wasn't at all. Um, Patrick Byrne has been a, a, a vocal advocate for these technologies and in fact has made huge moves to shift Overstock's model uh, into the blockchain space in a, in a really significant way. However, he also uh, has been involved with kind of a lot of uh, political machinations right now. So this is a quote from him. In July, I came forward to a small set of journalists regarding my involvement in certain governmental affairs. Doing so was not my first choice, but I was reminded of the damage done to our nation for three years and felt my duty as a citizen pre prevented, precluded me from staying silent any longer. Uh, basically, long story short, uh, Patrick Byrne was romantically involved with uh, Maria Butina, um, who was later revealed to be a Russian operative uh, who used NRA activism to infiltrate American politics and was later sentenced uh, to prison. So uh, he made a bunch of comments about this publicly, yada, yada, yada. If you're the board of a major company, if you're the stockholder of a company, it's one thing when your CEO wants to shift the business model in fundamental ways. It's another thing when you get involved in uh, in Russian political spy scandals, right? Um, and so I don't think that this necessarily has that much to do with, uh, with Bitcoin or with crypto or anything. Um, however, it is notable that in his resignation letter, uh, he he shares um, you know one of what his key takeaways are, and I want to read the passage just about uh, about blockchain and cryptocurrencies. So he says, 
I think the blockchain revolution will reshape key social institutions. We have designed and breathed life into perhaps the most significant blockchain kuretsu in the world, a network of blockchain firms seeking to revolutionize identity, land, and governance, equaling the rule of law, equaling potential, equaling capital, central banking, capital markets, supply chains, and voting. In three of those fields, land, governance, central banking, and capital markets, uh, the word trillions comes to mind when, disrupt when calculating the disruptive opportunity of blockchains. In those three fields, our blockchain progeny, Medici land governance, Bit and T0 respectively, are arguably the leading blockchain disruptors in existence. Whether you think that uh, particular hyperbole is true, it is true that he's been a vocal uh, advocate for the space, as I mentioned at the beginning. So the question is, what's the bad and the good of this? Well, the, 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 the bad is that, um, you know, we did have uh, in the space had an advocate as the CEO of a major public company that was um, always going to be able to make news, always going to be able to uh, get headlines and was going to, by virtue of their position, be able to advocate for this space as a whole. Um, the good is that, you know, we've got plenty of, uh, of colorful folks who are making the argument for Bitcoin, who are making the argument for blockchain and cryptocurrencies more broadly. And, um, and there's a lot to be said for having new blood step in, not just kind of this, uh, this grab bag of, of kind of old tech guys uh, being the leading voices, um, you know, there's a reason that these folks can can make news. So I think that there's a, there's at least an argument that the more that we can bring new voices and new advocates into the fold and have them be the folks who are appearing, uh, you know, on CNBC and talking about Bitcoin and crypto, the better. So uh, you know, I think uh, I think there's uh, a lot to feel about it, and I'm interested in what you think. Is this a net positive, a net negative, or just kind of ultimately neutral? Because um, the the crypto industry and Bitcoin, the honey badger itself, is is not going to stop no matter who steps down from what company. Let me know in the comments. Let me know as you're watching, uh, and I will see you tomorrow, guys. Thanks for hanging out.